Welcome to the Just a GP podcast. My name is Dr. Ashley Broomfield and I have with me Charlotte Hesby, Beck Hoffman and our special guest, Genevieve Yates. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Genevieve. Hi. So Genevieve is a woman of many talents, described by a previous guest of ours at GP18 as a magical unicorn. <laughs> Genevieve is a GP, writer, educator and musician. I came to know Genevieve through my registrar training where she was a star educator and the associate director of training. I became an immediate Genevieve fangirl and binge read all her podcasts and later her book. So Genevieve has had such a varied career from her skills at skin excisions and advanced flaps to working on a TV set, pretending to be someone from, I don't know, somebody who wears big, huge dresses, whatever era that was from. 1861 in Outback Australia. 1861. (laughs) (laughs) And is currently doing a lot of roles within the RACGP. So she's the censor of Queensland and is the lead medical educator for the new training program that the college will be running from next year. She's also the chair of the pre-fellowship rec committee and does some work for MDAA as an educator on medico-legal matters. And the list goes on and on and on. So my favourite memory of you, Genevieve, I was thinking about this before coming on the podcast and My favourite memory is actually the first time you played the violin after the story about what you're going to be talking about today. And I remember that being a really emotional moment and I was really proud of you and and I remember seeing how how joyous it made you afterwards and during to to play the, the violin for the group of registrars that were in the room. Oh, thank you, Ash. That's uh, that's really lovely. That's a really lovely introduction. I feel very humbled and a bit embarrassed, but um, I, I must say that uh, uh, I immediately, when I met you, Ash, I immediately thought this is someone that's going to go far. And I just had, you know, there's some people that you meet and you and you really connect with, and I really felt that ever since we uh, we met. I'm, I'm so bit, so lovely following um, your career and, and what you're doing and what you have done, what you're doing, and it's just a joy to have known you. And thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. I really feel very honoured. We wouldn't have it any other way. So what is your highlight of the week? Maybe we'll start with Beck and Charlotte. Okay, well, I'm happy to go first. So the highlight for me this week has been Uh, we had these wellness awards in my PHN. So my Primary Health Network has got three membership groups, I think. One is called the uh, Sydney Health Community Network and they ran a wellness awards, which was putting it out to all of the not-for-profit NGO sort of groups who do health work in our footprint to tell us about the work they're doing um, in basically helping promote wellness uh, for the community that we serve. And it was just a stunning evening hearing about a huge number of really small organisations that run off the smell of an oily rag and have lots of volunteers assisting them, running really meaningful programs that really fill gaps. So, for instance, one of the groups that won the uh, Wellness Awards about inclusivity was a, a group that's called the Autism Community Network, so ACN, that was basically started up by a dad um, of a child with autism spectrum disorder. And he has now spread this group over, I think it's only about 10 years, into now 70, 17 LGAs with uh, oh, oh dear now I've really I think it's 1400 families are affected in terms of that their, their involvement and just hearing some of the lovely stories about the improvement of their journey as families because of this group has been really was really exciting sounds cool um my 
win of the week is one that my registrar has actually had. And this is a win for me because it's the first time I've had registrars this term. And I wasn't sure how I'd go. And I've actually really enjoyed having them part of the team. And it's probably one of the favourite things I have going into work now is working with my registrars. But um, one of the girls had a big social win with one of her patients that she'd been spending a lot of time with and was really getting her down. But this patient has made some big life decisions and has really shown the registrar why being a GP is awesome. So that's my highlight of the week. Fantastic. Well, I might uh, jump in with my highlight, if that's okay, Ash. Uh, So just following on from what you were talking about in your introduction about my playing violin. So I've I've been a violinist since I've been a very little girl, but I haven't played a lot in recent years. And I had a wonderful opportunity to play last weekend with the Northern Rhythm Symphony Orchestra. And uh, we played a Rossini Overture, Paganini Violin Concerto and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And it was a really, really lovely concert. Uh, And even better, we had this massive thunderstorm during the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And it was really fitting. You had this great big thunder and lightning and it really fit with the music. Um, So it was was just such a lovely time just to get away from my very overfull work calendar and uh, and play music with um, some wonderful musicians. So that was my highlight. Sounds like a good synergy with nature at that point, isn't it? It's that the joy of being able to be creative at the same time that nature's being creative around you. Oh, absolutely. And it was almost like Beethoven sort of uh, had designated, like it just it just came with the claps of the, the, the drums would roll and the thunder would happen and there would be lightning. It was just it was really spectacular. Luckily, it was not an outdoor concert because that might have been problematic. Might have been a bit scary as well. <laughs> So my highlight of the week is having Genevieve on the podcast and in terms of my professional highlight, I Beck and I have been working on the, the New Fellows Committee running a wellbeing weekend for all GPs in New South Wales and we were at the New South Wales faculty meeting in Sydney yesterday and we got shown the flyer that's going to be sent out for registration and registration is going to be open really soon and the flyer looks really cool so I'm really excited. It looks absolutely amazing. They've done such a great job on the advertising for this. It's really cool. Yeah. So should we get into the discussion? We are talking to Genevieve today about a really, I guess, difficult topic that to talk about and also listen to. It's about Genevieve's story over the past couple of years and what has happened to her and how she's managed to pull through and whenever I talk about it I always feel very emotional because I remember um, it happening at the time and, and receiving the emails and and talking with you Genevieve about how things were, were going and I've you know followed it over time and it's so nice to see you on the other side of such a really tough time and that it can can happen and so I was really keen to get all of your wisdom and put it out there for all the other GPs that may be in this situation or may be in this this situation in the future and and perhaps you can share some of your wisdom with other people. Thanks, Ash. Um, It is difficult to talk about and it's not something I talk about much nowadays, but I I think it really does help not only myself, but I think it it has got value to talk about at least the the basics um, and and what it has, how it has affected me. Uh, If it can help anyone else, then it's worth putting out there. Um, I just want to start by saying for the record that yes, I've had hardships in my life, but I actually consider myself very lucky and very blessed. Uh, I really have had many more positive things in my life than negative things, but I've had a few, a few too many hits and, uh, and that's what I'm going to just briefly outline now. So I'm actually going to go back a bit further than the last couple of years. Um, I suppose I'm, I've, I have a bit of a bad habit for losing people that I love. I suppose that could be summed up in that way. Uh, so it started off um, 
in my intern year, um, in the November of my intern year, my boyfriend Adam died of testicular cancer. And uh, it was intern year, well, internship is a difficult year for anyone, but it was it's pretty it's made a little bit more difficult when you have when you're looking after a loved one who has um, terminal cancer. He'd been diagnosed here before and everything was really good. He'd had surgery, etc. Uh, but then he ended up getting brain metastases um, and having a quite a prolonged, protracted, bad death, a really difficult death. Uh, and that was that was sort of the first the first blow. I, I was I was very much a planner in my life, and I from the time of sort of well time of being a little kid, I was very much determined to be a doctor. And by the time I reached about first or second year medicine, I was pretty keen on being a rural GP. Um, Adam was a country boy from, out from Quilpie in Western Queensland, and I had this whole plan of being the part time GP rural mum with a with horses a mad keen horse person so that was that was my plan uh and then after adam died i still soldiered on as uh and went and ended up um working as a country gp country-ish i like to say boutique rural uh i was working in the sunshine coast hinterland and the croy and pomona regions had ten and a half acres horse property very into equestrian events uh and then later on uh met um a lovely man called mike and we uh started try to start for start a family and have had a had a long difficult time with that journey as many people do so we ended up um, having five miscarriages, uh, four of which were in the second trimester. Uh, and that um, unfortunately uh, broke our marriage. Um, we didn't grieve similarly. Uh, it, it was just really difficult times. I was still working um, as a GP and I found that really challenging to be doing that while I was going through the pregnancy issues, and I'll talk more about that later. Uh, but that, um, so that was a very difficult time. And so by the time I was sort of in my mid thirties, uh, my marriage ended and I had pretty much thought that that was, that my dream of motherhood was over. Uh, but then I met a lovely new man um, called Mark and uh, we then decided to have another crack of this, at this parenthood thing. Uh, and then that's sort of where you sort of started to come into my life, Ash, with, uh, I was working at North Coast GP training, um, and luckily became pregnant and had a daughter called Emily. Unfortunately, she didn't survive. And that was in 2014. And then in 2015, uh, I got pregnant again. Um, and then when I was 15 weeks pregnant, Mark was over in the US, um, and got, hit by a car when he was on a morning jog, uh, hit by an elderly driver uh, who had mistook, hadn't seen him crossing at the intersection and mistook the brake pedal for the accelerator or the accelerator for the brake pedal, I should say, and uh, plowed straight into him. Um, and he died from his injuries a few hours after reaching hospital. And then later on, uh, um, our daughter Aria, was born prematurely and didn't survive. So that was in 2015. Um, since that time, life has been was has been trauma free. But I've uh, it's taken quite some time to come to terms uh, with the fact that Plan A, Plan B, Plan C didn't work. Um, another 23 letters in the alphabet. So I'm just working my way through those. Uh, but it's it really has completely shaped who I am. Uh, I very much don't want to be pitied. Um, I, I, as I said, I don't see myself as unlucky. And I want to talk about uh, the, the concept both of resilience, but also of post-traumatic growth uh, and and really to see that the some of the good things that can come out of tragedies, but also just some tips and some tricks about what I found personally about what didn't didn't help when grieving and how GPs can better support each other and our patients who have gone through um, terrible losses. So that's my story in a nutshell. Thank you, Genevieve. Yep, thanks, Genevieve. So if that's okay, I'm really happy for you to continue 
on and tell us some of those tips because certainly from where I'm sitting, when we if we think about just that story, it's it's very overwhelming because there's sort of grief after grief and it's where, where do you start and where do you finish in dealing with that and 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 what's okay to talk about or not talk about and what's helpful and not helpful. Yeah, thanks, Charlotte. Um, it is a bit overwhelming and I think uh, for those people that have known me a long time, it's sort of one at a time, but when, I, when you sort of put it all together, uh, it is – it is quite overwhelming, and people don't know what to say or what not to say, and and that's and that's really awkward for everyone involved. And I think some one of the reasons I'm talking about it today, and uh, and thank you for inviting me to do that, is I think we don't talk about this kind of thing enough. We we put these in the oh it's too hard or I don't want to upset someone or I won't. I might say the wrong thing, so I won't say anything. And so people that are have gone through griefs. They, they they can feel really isolated because pe- they don't think that necessarily people care. While they actually care a lot, they just can't express it um, or, or have difficulty expressing it. Uh, so uh, the first thing I want to say about, about grief, um, I've learned a lot about grief and I've got a lot better at grief. Um, I, I have to say that uh, I didn't always do the grief thing well. Um, I've had plenty of very dark days, uh, like I was an unpleasant ball of sort of whining self-pity uh, without compassion for either myself or for others. And there have been many times I've just felt utterly broken and felt that I've never be truly happy again. I just thought there's just no way I can ever be happy again. I thought, you know, these losses are going to engulf me and I'd sort of shake my hand at the sky and, you know, say, you know, life, you know, when I asked whether things could get worse, I, I met it as a rhetorical question, not a challenge. Um, and it's, I, I sort of had this, I have certainly, I don't want to give the impression that I'm just someone that sailed through this and got all the answers because I absolutely don't. Uh, but why, although there have been the cumulative effects of successive um, losses, I, I think also it gave me the opportunity to develop and practice new adaptive skills and thought patterns, which have really helped me. Um, and again, I hasten to add that what's helped me may not help others. Uh, and that's one of the really big things I've learned is that everyone has their own way and of dealing with diff- of griefs and it might be different at different times and there's no right or wrong and there's no timeline that is right or wrong um, and essentially it's really about helping people I feel create self-awareness about what's right for them and living by their own values finding out what's right for them and living that way and supporting people in the way that they need to be supported rather than the way that we think they need supported. So, for example, one of the common um, things is that that we sort of say or that I always thought is that when people have gone through things like that, you should, you know, forget about work or take time off or, or you know, and spend time with your family and friends and that's what's really important and that will help you. Um, and that may be true for a lot of people, but it certainly wasn't true for me. Uh, so when the way that I best dealt with my grief was immersing myself in other aspects of life. And this was particularly apparent um, during my multiple miscarriage phase uh, when the way that I dealt with life was really getting involved in a lot of creative pursuits. So I wrote a novel, I wrote plays, I did a lot of work on stage. So those kind of uh, music, those kind of things really, really helped me uh, and quite a lot of the stuff I wrote and performed was about motherhood and things. Other stuff was very much not about it. Some was humorous, some was serious. Um, but it really just got me out of the the place that was uncomfortable to be at uh, or be in, I should say. And and I worked my way through the feelings and the emotions and stuff in my own way. But when to go and sort of do a family barbecue with friends, it was absolutely torture uh, because I just see all these happy families and people having babies and pregnant and I just wanted to just steal their babies or scream and shout or, you know, it just was really difficult. And I, I found particularly that sort of that, you know, that casual chat, that sort of chit chat thing, I just found that intolerable while others might find that useful. So uh, that was, that was at that point. But then after I lost 
my two daughters and, and Mark, I couldn't face any of my creative stuff. I stopped playing music. I stopped writing. It just, and I immersed myself in work. And and at that point, it actually was really helpful. It was a really good distraction. And it was, it allowed me to sort of numb myself, I suppose, until I was ready to actually process what I needed to process. So I was in survival mode. And for the first year or two after all that happened, I was, I just got through each day and by feeling that I was doing something productive and useful and helping society um, in a broader sense through the work I was doing got me through. If I just sat at home not working, it, I, I don't know that I would be here today or at least not in the kind of way that I am. So I suppose that's one of the biggest things is that everyone needs their own way of doing it and it's not – the whole work-life balance, well, it's a, first of all, it's a concept I really don't like, but it, it's, it doesn't necessarily work for people in the way, in everyone in the same way. So I think when we're dealing with patients that have uh, have losses uh, or life upsets or difficult diagnoses, et cetera, what we really need to be helping them with is striving for for them to for internal self-awareness so to be able to assess and monitor and proactively manage their values rather than telling them or thinking that we know what's best for them so for me um when i reflect back on what i've known from you and what you've talked about just then throwing yourself into work was actually a really constructive thing for you absolutely yeah and then one thing that I've really admired is the challenges that you've picked up and kind of run with um, since then. And so notably, which I'm sure lots of people listening will know about, is the driver's licensing work that you've been doing. So, yeah, that was, so just for those of you that are unaware, um, so when Mark was killed by um, this driver, I found out later that the person that killed him had been assessed as fit to drive by his family doctor just a couple of weeks prior to the accident, even though his family had had serious concerns about his driving safety for some time. And it really lit a fire in my belly to try and, and think, well, I can't bring the love of my life back, uh, but maybe if sharing my story can perhaps prevent one other person losing their life then it's worth it's worth doing and um and I was the Victor Frankl book um Man's Search for Meaning uh has a lovely line essentially saying that uh suffering in some ways suffering when a meaning is found ceases to be suffering it it made it just really did help me to try and get some kind of purpose or meaning through through that and I've done sort of similarly as far as losing children and, and miscarriage as well I've written for SANS the uh, stillbirth and neonatal death association they've I've written for their blog site and and done quite a bit in uh, earlier times of writing uh, both my novel has quite a lot of those themes but also sort of plays and other things around the topic of of fetal loss and and the the sort of the unspoken uh, taboo subject that is, um, and and doing that raising awareness um, and potentially helping others and supporting others going through similar things has not only uh, hopefully helped them but it's really helped me. Genevieve, I'm really interested in this concept of utilizing work as GPs in helping us get better and through our tough times. And you and I have kind of spoken about this amongst ourselves, uh, having similarities in terms of difficulty with motherhood or obtaining motherhood, um, which is some another magical unicorn apparently, <laughs> um, where it can be really difficult when you're, you're seeing people that are coming into you and you're treating them and, and as you say, it can be really difficult dealing with a patient group that has something that you would like and or you have lots of people coming in getting pregnant and you think oh well what what's the issue here and it can it can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming but over more so than that I've actually found learning from my patients and seeing what they are dealing with in their own lives, their ways of 
dealing with it, their thought processes with how they come to terms with that. Um, you know, the people that I've experienced in terms of dealing with difficult diagnoses or terminal diagnoses or people who are dying. And you really learn a lot from the people that we see in terms of how to cope with difficult emotions in ourselves. Yeah, so it is a really interesting topic and it is both rewarding and difficult and comes with sort of unique challenges when as GPs we are dealing uh, with difficult times. So on the on the positive side, as you said, we can we have a direct way of influencing our patients' lives for the better and having real empathy for the struggles that people have because let's face it, life flings crap at all of us in various ways, shapes and form. Um, so it is good to be able to have experiences in which we actually do feel that we can relate and understand. But on the other hand, it has some significant challenges. Uh, I, When I was going through my miscarriages in my early 30s, I had a lot of troubles uh, with my work in general practice in that I had a very large population of um, obstetric patients and pediatric patients. So women's health and peds were special areas of interest of mine and uh, as well as mental health. And I, and I, I, I found it incredibly difficult uh, to, to go to work, particularly because I'd, at any one, any one of my five initial pregnancies, I had patients that were, um, that had conceived at the same time as I had, at least three or four of them, at least sometimes more. And then when I lost the pregnancy and then seeing them with their pregnancy progressing to term um, and their babies, and then seeing their babies for, as they grew to one, two, three, four-year-olds, it it was just like knife in a heart every time. Uh, And it got really quite bad uh, towards the end. After my marriage had ended and after this happened, I actually uh, went and did skin cancer medicine for two years. And you mentioned in my introduction that I do quite a bit of skin cancer stuff. Part of that was because I enjoyed it. But part of that is because I just needed a break from babies and babies and mums and pregnancy. I just, I, I, I reached the end of my tether with that. It was just too painful. And likewise, after Adam died, I, I, I couldn't really do palliative care stuff for the first couple of years. It just was too painful. Um, but then later, it allowed me to really have a good appreciation of, of what it was like to have a family member die of cancer and their palliative care journey. And I ended up doing quite a lot of palliative care when I, a few years later, as a GP and GP registrar. So it, it may be acutely painful at the time, but it, it can, it, over. there are ways of dealing with that as you move forward. I suppose now I actually, am, I'm absolutely fine with dealing with pregnant patients and babies and children I have no issues with that at all but I I still find it difficult when people ask questions about my family and this is partly because as GPs it's really important that we don't let our stuff so our personal stuff interfere with a doctor-patient relationship the way that the relationship is set up is that it's all about the patient and we shouldn't be uh, clouding the relationship with information about ourselves. Sometimes we can use judicious self-disclosure as a way of um, of developing empathy, etc. But there's nothing that stops a conversation more quickly than dead babies and dead husbands. So you know, it's uh, uh, it's something. It's really difficult when patients uh, just have the whole chit chat at the beginning of consultations, and they often, as they often do with. Uh, with female GPs in particular and female GPs of a certain age, they sort of automatically start asking about family. Um, you know, have you got kids or how, or how old are your children or, you know, is your partner around? I mean, that seems to be questions I not uncommonly get. And it's very difficult to know how to answer those. If I say, oh, no, I don't have children, it feels like I'm denying my girls existed, but it's there's no kind of word for a childless mother. And as well, I, it's not appropriate if someone's going to come in with their problem they don't want to hear about my problems and it's it's very difficult uh and likewise after leaving for a maternity leave type period going back to a practice without a baby becomes incredibly awkward because patient patient's going to say oh so you know how's the baby how's the pregnancy and and there's no baby so that all of that is makes it really difficult and unlike other workplaces where you're seeing the same people day in day out at general practice you're constantly seeing new people or at least a you know, several hundred people over the space of of a of a certain period so it's sort of 
telling, having to tell your story or not tell your story over and over again, I still find that challenging, to be honest. Thanks, Genevieve. I'm just wondering whether I can also explore another area that you sort of touched on, particularly too, I think, in the palliative care element is that we haven't really talked about that the spiritual dimension of how you dealt with the grief and the sort of the multiple trauma and I know that you know being put a little academic thing is that I know that there is been research that showed that our patients actually want us to ask about their spiritual health and what's going on there so for you does has that sort of given you insight into what you would or wouldn't ask for your patients and particularly with patients who might be dealing with death? That's a great question, Charlotte. Uh, So I would say that as far as levels of spirituality, and of course, spirituality uh, is a very broad church, uh, literally, I, I would say I'm very much in the not at all spiritual or very low spirituality, I would say, as far as uh, my personal beliefs go. Uh, I also am highly aware of the important spirituality in mental health and dealing with death and dying. And part of me, in a way, when I was going through this sort of part of me was like, oh, it might be actually helpful to have a belief about life after death and that my babies were somewhere else looking down on me. And I just, but that's not a belief I've ever had. So I, I suppose with spirituality, because I'm not a particularly spiritual person myself, I, I tend to ask about it, not in a very direct fashion, but I, I certainly do try and get a sense of where people are at and um, encourage them more. I suppose I'll talk more about values and and finding meaning and purpose and that sometimes can be in a spiritual way and other times it, it can't. Uh, it, does, it does not. And I, I suppose it also depends on how people define and, and think about spirituality. But for me, it's less about spirituality and more about a change in mindset Really, there's been kind of four really big changes in my life that have come out of all of this that I've sort of thought about the the post-traumatic growth, so to speak. And we've said already about, I've talked all about finding meaning and looking at uh, purpose and, and that sort of thing. And the others are, one of the things I also alluded to earlier about ditching my plan, so letting go of the plan uh, and just really taking life for where it come, what comes and just keeping my eyes open for opportunities and and essentially going with the flow so to speak that's really helped but the biggest one the biggest two I think that the reason I actually think that I'm uh, probably a more settled happier person overall in my life um, now than I was many years ago uh, was was about first of all cultivating gratitude and and really looking for the things I'm grateful for on a daily basis and having done some mindfulness and some CBT and some other other uh, processes uh, the cultivating gratitude was one that really resonated with me and, and I found incredibly helpful when I'm actually looking for what to be grateful for it really helps me to to see those things um, and the second one is it's really all about kindness and acceptance so being kind to myself um, being kind to others that's probably the the biggest thing not that I don't think I don't think I ever was an unkind person but to that I I was always particularly tough on myself and I think a lot of us in medicine our personalities are a bit like that uh really just accepting accepting people for who they are accepting that uh that we're all on our own journeys and and our and our have our own challenges I I suppose just to to give you an example after I lost my first child, Emily. I, I found the level of support I, I was was extremely varied, and the, the I sort of had previously kind of thought of the 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 the, the wisdom was you can tell who your real friends are when times are tough that kind of that kind of thing. But I actually don't believe that at all anymore, because a lot of people really care. They just don't know how to show it, and even other doctors. And some people would say some really what could be considered very hurtful things, but they didn't mean them to be hurtful. They just didn't know what to say, and they were, and they were, they ended up being 
really clumsy. And having talked to people about this, some of them just say, look, I just feel really uncomfortable. And others say nothing at all or actively avoiding me. I had one friend who defriended me from Facebook because she was pregnant and didn't want me to know she was pregnant because she thought it might be painful. But then later on, finding she had a baby was probably even more painful. You know? So there's, there's all this stuff that I actually felt quite resentful and angry about it at the time. And then there were other people who were trying to help me in ways that I didn't feel were helpful to me. So just coming around and visiting um, me multiple times um, or excessive contact on the phone or email or bringing me gifts that I didn't really particularly want and I kind of felt obliged and then I felt guilty and then I kind of felt resentful and I felt bad about myself because I was feeling guilty and obliged to them and and it really wasn't it was the actual process of grieving I was really making it harder for myself and and after the the next two losses I I changed my mindset about that and it made an enormous difference so uh, I, I really saw the clumsy of support clumsy expressions of support or those that offered no support as well-meaning. So I I essentially would just say everyone's trying to do their best. It's really hard and and having – showing kindness towards them and um, accepting how – whatever the way that people were able or not able to show it made a really big difference. And sometimes I actually helped them directly. Like I sort of actually told people what I need and what I don't need rather than just um, having people try and do things and not know what to do. Um, And then I just, I focused on those that really gave me fabulous support. Uh, For example, one of your previous podcast guests, Nicola Holmes, who's been a friend of mine since 2006, was just absolutely wonderful person to be around. And during this time, she knew exactly what to say and how to say it and made me feel really good. So I would spend my time around people like that. And rather than feeling obliged to spend my time around those that that didn't give me what I needed. And and part of that was giving myself the permission that I, I didn't actually owe anyone anything during that time. And uh, and that really comes to one thing that I was like, hoping to share with you and your listeners about ring theory. Do you, have you guys heard about ring theory as um, in context of grief counselling? No. No. We're happy to hear. Okay. So the essence, it's it's basically, it, it's, it's comfort in, dump out. And I'll just explain um, what that means. So essentially, um, I, I've used this, I should say, with lots of patients and also in my mental health teaching since, and it really resonates with people. And it's some, the, real, the reason it works for me is that what I found, I was kind of the epicenter of some of these, these grief reactions, but I found that I was felt like I needed to support other people. So other people being affected by my grief. And I just felt overwhelmed by that. And and I was difficult had difficulty enough just coping myself rather than feeling like people were supporting others. And and looking back on it, I think they were just trying to give empathy. But sometimes them giving empathy made you kind of, I felt guilty for making them sad, if that makes sense. Um, from And it was, it was just really quite, un, it was just really, really wasn't really helpful. Um, and also some of my other family members, et cetera, who were themselves grieving for loss of their granddaughter or loss of their son-in-law or whatever, or loss of their son, they were leaning on me for support. And instead of feeling like we were doing this together, I felt that I was kind of carrying their grief and my grief, and it was really unhelpful to me. So I came across this concept and it really has really helped and it's helped a lot of my patients. So what you do is you draw a circle and that's the center ring. And in it, you put the name of the person who's at the center of whatever trauma. So let's just say, for example, you have a 15-year-old patient who's just been diagnosed with leukemia. So let's just may say, call her Kate, right? So she'll be in the center of that. Then you draw a larger circle around the first one. And in that ring, you put the names of the person or the people that are next closest to her. So in this case, it probably would be her parents. And then you repeat the process as many times as you need to. And in each larger ring, you put the next closest people. So you go parents and children, then more distant relatives, you know, intimate friends before less intimate friends and so on. And the rules are that the person in the center ring can say anything they want to anyone. So you can complain and whine and moan and and say life is unfair or whatever you want to do. That's that's the, the honor of being in that center ring. And everyone else can say those things as well, but they can only say them to people 
in large rings. So they can only dump, so as in whinge, to people out further from them the tragedy. And so when you're talking to a person that's in a ring smaller than yours, someone closer to the centre, the goal is to help. And mostly that's by listening rather than talking. Uh, I noticed in your one of your previous podcasts, uh, again with Nicola, uh, there was you mentioned the don't just do something, sit there, um, which is really good advice. And uh, another another little quote I like is um, is having the ability to sit in the dark with someone and not feel the need to reach for the light switch. And I really like that. Yeah really really clarifying isn't it i remember this ring i think it did it come up on gps down under yeah i i, I posted it there yeah yeah so the, the thing is if you're going to open your mouth you have to say like what what if you're going to say something make sure it's supportive supportive or comfortable and if it isn't don't say it so and this i suppose just some advice in my experience of what has helped and what hasn't helped um giving platitudes don't help I kept losing babies people go oh you know the next one i've got a good feeling about this one or you know lots of people lose babies and they go on and have lots of healthy babies and and i just found that really unhelpful and so just empathize with people's distress but don't try and make them feel better by saying oh it'll all be fine um don't giving it don't give advice uh and, and don't sort of say well yeah well, this is what happened to me and it was much worse or you know i i got better after this and i think that's really unhelpful too and that's one caution i have about talking today and also just talking in my story at other times I don't want people to think oh it's all right for her but she doesn't really understand what's going on for me or why am I having difficulties when she's okay um so I just want to emphasize I have not been okay I've had some really tough times and I'm still have tough times but I, I'm hoping that maybe some of this stuff will be helpful rather than unhelpful but I think there are there's no there's no one thing that's going to help everyone and, and a lot of it is just about listening and also about letting people say what's going to be helpful to them and giving them the space to be able to say what's going to be helpful to them. So anyway, so that's the, the comfort in dump out thing. And I, I, I've just, I found that so eye opening and it made the griefs, the, the, the grief from losing Mark and Aria actually a lot easier in many ways than, than losing Emily. And even though there was that cumulative loss, uh so it just it just really does show that you can't change what's happening to you necessarily but you you can at least modify how you're feeling in some ways but but in other ways it's okay to also to fall apart like it's okay to be not okay you don't have to be you don't have to do this grieving thing well you can just do it really messily as long as you just keep going as Winston Churchill said you know if you're good if you're going through hell just keep going and I think that has really helped me that sounds great um, and I also really like the tip you had about having permission to let go of the plan that's something that I think I'm definitely going to use from here though we're rapidly running out of time on a Saturday night and I know we would all love to talk to you forever but I was wondering if there were any final tips or anything that you wanted to talk about specifically on this topic before we moved to our resource of the week. Oh, thanks. And I'm sorry, I just say I can talk about this stuff for so many hours because it's been a big part of my life for so long. Um, I suppose just one other tip for GPs about those that have had losses. Just remember to check in on important dates. Uh, so Christmas, uh, birthdays, anniversaries of deaths, etc. because there are times that can be really very painful and sometimes unexpectedly painful that really catch you. So if you can just make a little note in someone's chart about particular dates and check in on them um, as appropriate. I think people really appreciate that. Sometimes people say, think, oh, but I'll just remind them of that. But you don't, people don't forget, <laughs> you know, you don't get reminded, oh, hang on. Yeah, I lost my daughter. Like that's, that, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't like that. Actually, you acknowledging it and remembering it can be really, really powerful. And likewise, there's a lot of, a huge outpouring of support when these things happen, but then the fuss dies down and people goes back to normal lives. And sometimes the person that's been affected by the grief can feel very isolated at that time. So whether it be a patient or a family or a friend that is going through a loss, uh, in some ways, 
sometimes taking a step back in the acute phase and then providing the support and stepping up when everyone else has stepped away can be very, very effective. So that's my, those are my sort of tips, uh, I would say, about dealing with grief and, uh, and moving forward to a life worth living. Thank you, Genevieve. It's been really lovely hearing you talk. And when you first started talking, you said, I have so much more positive things that have happened to me in my life than negative things. And I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about what makes you see the world that way in terms of being grateful, being kind to people, accepting life as it is and people as they are and letting go of our need to cling to things and kind of just working within that flow and 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 being grateful for what comes towards us. So that's really appreciate you coming on and sharing those words of wisdom. That's a lovely summary, Ash. Thank you. It really is. I was taking notes. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the, the key is if you, it's, if you need to get up more times than you fall down. If you, if you do that, then you'll be okay. Yeah. I, definitely over this period that I've known you, I've learned a lot from you and – and letting go of the plan, like like Beck said, I think was something that I learned from you quite early on to just be like, well, if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And and same with career or, or anything in life. And it's been really useful. So I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. And we should talk about our resource of the week. I'm happy to go first. Well, if everybody else wants to think about them, mine is a completely different tangent, but I am also equally appreciative of your story and the the really useful um, hints you've given us, Genevieve. But this resource is actually about the um, Smokalyzer gadget. And I don't know if any of you are using one of these at the moment. So I've been doing some work um, with the people in drug and alcohol over smoking cessation and some of the things that we can try and do to assist with really bringing the target down from the current sort of 12% of Australian smoking down to um, an ideal one of maybe 5%. And there's this thing called a smokalizer. It's made by a company called Pico. Well, it's called Pico, but basically it gives you a level of carbon monoxide and it's a really good little gadget to be able to motivate patients because when they're smoking, you have a really high carbon monoxide level, but when you stop, it actually drops down to normal. But particularly with pregnant women, it's a really good way of actually helping motivate them because it actually shows how much of the carbon monoxide is going into their baby's bloodstream. So you can actually assist them in understanding the importance of why they need to stop smoking. I've heard about it, but I've not used it before. And that sounds like a really nice use for the tool, which I hadn't thought of before. So thank you. My resource of the week is going to be a specific Facebook group. And I actually don't know Genevieve, but I feel that I know her through this Facebook group. And this is the Medical Mums and Mums-to-be from Australia and New Zealand. It is a secret Facebook group, so you will have to know somebody who's already part of the group to be able to join the group. But it has, um, I think, close to 7,000 members who are parents who are either trying to achieve pregnancy who are, or who are pregnant or who are thinking about being pregnant. And, yes, there are good things and bad things about all social groups that size, um, but for me it's just really helped me on the journey over the last few years of being a mum and being a parent and being a doctor and everything that comes along with that. Thanks, Beck. I, I, I must put a big shout out to the Medical Mums Facebook group. They have helped me so much um, through this journey. I first posted when I was pregnant with Emily uh, very excitedly uh, when I'd passed, I was uh, past the, the, the date of my previously uh, longest pregnancy, which was at the time 16 weeks. And, uh, and it was so, it was so wonderful to be able to share the journey through the pregnancy and then when I lost Emily, the support was was palpable of these all these wonderful women who, many of whom, most of whom I'd never met, but provided 
an amazing amount of support through a very difficult time. So I agree, it's an excellent group. So uh, as far as uh, my tip goes, um, I've actually gonna, I'm going to be very naughty and give two tips. But one tip is actually about the tip. So the tip of the week is such a good concept, and I I'm imagining that uh, as you are going through your weeks, uh, the three of you, is you're actually looking for tips and looking for useful things. Um, and I find that a bit like, it's a bit like with gratitude training, you start looking for things to be grateful for. So I would actually put a shout out to uh, to all of those that are teaching registrars, GP registrars, whether you're a supervisor or medical educator, if you actually start incorporating tip of the week into your teaching and getting the registrars to specifically look for resources and tips and to share them because you'll learn lots of things and it's an excellent way of uh, of encouraging people to look for useful resources. In fact, I used to do that when I was at, in Queensland doing registrar teaching. We started with tip of the week with my tutorial sessions and I also remember Ash and, and I doing a project for North Coast GP training collating resources, which was a lot of fun. So that's my, that's my semi-tip. But my actual real tip is uh, in keeping with what I was talking about earlier about mental fitness and positive psychology. I'm going to a site called Biteback. So that's B-I-T-E-B-A-C-K.org.au. And this is aimed at young people, though it's useful. It's great for anyone. Uh, and they have a, a mental fitness challenge, which is a six-week program in which you're looking at various aspects of positive psychology. It's particularly aimed at teens who are not necessarily having mental health problems, but might be a little bit vulnerable to potential mental health problems. And so it's really helping build up their um, their mental um, health and their resilience. Resilience not always being a, d- a dirty word. Uh, so looking at gratitude, mindfulness, social connections, etc. So biteback.org.au for anyone that of any age but if you are under 18 there is like a $250 gift voucher prize that you can wear that you can win if you do the mental fitness challenge so just uh, put a bit of a plug in for that uh, for that website my resource this week is one that i use a lot with patients and it's called 7 minute motion it's a, a workout app that was released by the NHS and it comes with a bundle of other workout apps as well, one called The Walk, which helps people to start walking and, and walk further and that you can progress to uh, couch to 5K if you wanted to do that from that one. But seven-minute motion is only a couple of dollars to download and it it's really great because it's only seven minutes and it's kind of like calisthenic type exercises such as squats or star jumps or um, sitting against a wall. And so it increases muscle mass and it's resistance-based training and it's a short period of time. So I've, I've recommended a lot to patients who are time poor. Thank you, everyone, for um, a great session, but particularly thank you, Genevieve. It's been a really special time and I really appreciate you being able to come on and share your story. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charlotte. I always, when I ever do something like this, I always tell myself, don't talk too much, don't talk too much, don't talk too much, and I always talk too much. So uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, putting up with uh, my ramblings. But uh, I do, I am so passionate about about this topic and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh to um to talk about it with your listeners. Good night. Good night. Good night.